0: Well, this morning we have a little bit of a special guest, uh, well, quite a bit of a special guest. She spoke at the women's tea yesterday, and I thought it was such, uh, uh, in reading her testimony, so important that I just asked her if she would share this morning with all of you as well. uh, again, we, we're we currently going through the book of Exodus. We will continue that next week. But uh, in the meanwhile, we have a special guest for, for us today. Uh, today, a year ago today, I died and um, uh, I joined the Lazarus Club um, out working in the yard. Chest started hurting. My wife said, I'll take you to the to the ER. I said, no, it's probably just gas. It wasn't. And on the way to the hospital, it stopped hurting. I said, see, it's just what I said. She goes, I'm taking you in anyway. Thank God for women who don't stop. Anyway, so she takes me in there and I'm out in the parking lot and all of a sudden starts hurting again. And um, felt like I had to burp, but I couldn't with a sack of concrete on my chest. And by the time I walked through the door, I was hurting bad. They sat me in a wheelchair, asked me my name, Wheel me back, threw me on a gurney, pulled my pants off, put suckers all over me with wires. From the time I walked into the hospital emergency room door to the time I died was 15 minutes. So what's really weird about that is that um, that was the last thing I thought would happen to me when I got up Saturday morning a year ago. It was uh, December 5th. And <clears throat> when I got up, uh, I went out and just was doing things in the yard. And it's interesting to me how we can make our plans, but you know, we're all a heartbeat away from everything changing. And so for two minutes, I was dead. And I heard myself flatline. I heard the boop, 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 boop. And, I, and my wife was standing there and I hear boop. And I looked at my wife and I said, well, that ain't good. Last thing I said, I couldn't imagine anything more on the tombstone was that ain't good. And so anyway, uh, I, I lay there, they paddled me. Uh, The doctor said, you're going to be really sore tomorrow. And I said, why is that? And they said, well, they were pounding on your chest and you were flying off the gurney as they were giving you 200 Joel yules. I don't know what a Joel yule is, but I got 200 of them in my chest. I was flying off the bed, she, so they wheeled me down, they stuck a stent in me, and uh, it was a miracle the doctor that put the stents in happened to be there, rather than being on call, uh, and uh, rather than my wife listening to me, uh, just go back, oh, there's Dutch Brothers, let's stop and get a latte. I would have been the last thing I had ever done, but we went to the hospital anyway, what it was, three weeks before I had COVID, I got over it, started feeling good. In fact, I told my wife that morning, I said, this is the best I felt for four weeks. And about two hours later, I was dead. Um, which is interesting because if any of you, I'm not a doctor, I don't prescribe medicine, but my doctor said, had you been eating baby aspirin a day, he said, you probably wouldn't be in here right now. The COVID clot. The COVID really likes to clot your blood up. Uh, one of the sisters in our fellowship come up. And she said, will you pray for my son? And I said, this was about, oh, this was about three or four months ago. And I said, well, sure, what's wrong? She said, well, he had a stroke. And I looked at her, and based upon her age, I said, uh, did he have COVID about four weeks ago? And she thought I was some kind of a prophet of God. And she goes, yes. How did you know? And I said, because of clots, which cause mine went into my heart. Some people go into their brains. Some people go in their legs, arms, whatever. But uh, it, is, it is really uh, pretty serious stuff. The point is to say all that to say this. When Jesus said, Watch and be ready, you don't know what hour your Lord is going to come, I, I believe that is directly speaking of the rapture of the church. But I also believe that it speaks directly. Of um, that we don 't know when we 're going to check out, we you know like I say, when I got up that Saturday morning, it was a morning like yesterday yesterday's Saturday is nice and warm uh, well, <laughs> excuse me if you 're from California in the winter, when we have a day forty five it 's nice and warm anywhere else it 's the same temperature as your refrigerator, but that 's another topic, but we we actually we actually we're doing things around the yard. It never crossed my mind that, hey, in four hours, you're going to be dead. Now, again, I would have been had I not not made it to the hospital. But the point simply is this. You know, when Jesus said, and by the way, I've been dead. And let me tell you, don't anybody here fear it, because I was dead. I did notice one thing, I was still conscious. I was very much aware around of things around me. I did not see golden puppies. I wasn't dead long enough. But I will tell you this. It is not something that I would ever fear as a Christian. Now, if you're not a Christian here today, I think you've got everything in the world to fear. Because if today was your last day, in two hours you were to have a heart attack, where would you go? And see, the thing is, is that there's one thing wonderful about having your life in Jesus. And that's that you know that when that time comes, you're going to be ready to go. And that was one of the things as I'm laying there and right before the, the heart attack, the, the final hit where my heart stopped, I just remember just saying, Lord, just take care of my family. Because I thought that was, I thought this was it. And the doctor came in and he said, I said, my hurts. I don't know what's wrong. He says, you're having a heart attack. I go oh I thought I couldn't get those. He goes anybody can get those. The reason why there's no heart heart attack history in my family. I I just had a, we had life screening here. Many of you know what that is. The the team of nurses and doctors come in and they life screen you and they said, "Oh, your heart is healthy and everything." And so I think, "Good. I'm you know, I'm just trucking on. Good." So when they told me I was having a heart attack, well that didn't go along with what the prognosis was here, plus what my family was. What I'm saying is this, just be ready. You don't know what hour. Jesus is going to take us all home. Or that you might be part of our welcoming committee when we get there. Now this morning, speaking of people that have died and come back, I believe uh, Marlene is somebody that certainly has um, had that. You know, there's a lot of things in life that cause us to do things that we would not normally ever do. In other words, we think, and many years ago, maybe you were one of those when you were a kid saying, boy, I, I never use drugs. I never stick a needle in my arm. I, 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 I hate needles, only to find out later in life you're doing things you never dreamed you, you would ever do. Well, I think that a lot of times people are like that, and things in life change. And so Marlene's got an interesting testimony about how God saved her, not only brought her back to life, but also gave her a reason to live. And many of you listening today in this room, and maybe over the radio, around the world, on the internet, um, I just want to encourage you that God has a reason for you to live as well. And so uh, let's just welcome Marlene as she comes and shares her wonderful testimony with us.
1: Thank you. Um, Christmas. Christmas, so many thoughts and images and scriptural accounts of what happened the day that Jesus was born. But in my mind, I can literally only think of the angels as they were sitting around the throne of God for 2,000 years, singing, Holy, 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 is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Holy, 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 is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. You know, Scripture tells us that The angels stare in amazement. They're they're watching us in amazement. We were gifted and we were offered a blessing that they weren't even offered. Thank you so much. Sorry, y'all. Sometimes I talk so fast, I get thirsty. So, the way that my story begins, I think, is all predestined by God. You know, as your pastor was sharing, hey, where did he go? Okay, as your pastor was sharing, um, the days of our life are numbered. Before we were even born, we, we have been predestined for salvation before the foundations of the world were laid. God had already orchestrated that way of salvation. See, I was originally born in East LA. I, I was birthed to a mother who has told me my entire life that I'm a product of rape. According to my mother, that my dad raped her, and that's how I was conceived. And then she would go on to say that my dad didn't believe that I was his. So he would beat her in hopes that I would miscarry. And then when, when my mom was six months pregnant, um, he threw her down the stairs and, and she got really sick and she, she went to the hospital because she was not feeling well. And, and according to my mother, the doctors gave my grandmother a choice to either save her, to save her daughter or to save the unborn baby six months in utero. And my grandmother being, a loving mother that she was, decided that to save her daughter. So my mother was given a medication that was supposed to abort me. But again, it's God that separates us from our mother's womb. And I survived that day. So I go to one hospital to fight for my life and my mother goes to another hospital to fight for hers. Now, according to my mom, my dad didn't want me because I'm a product of rape. He didn't believe I was his. He tried to kill me in her stomach. And then he gave me to my aunt to raise for the first two years of my life. Well, my mom is is fighting to learn how to walk and talk and eat and, and brush her hair. I was raised by my aunt. Now, when my mom became well and and the the course decided that myself and my older brother needed to be given back to my mother, I was taken from the only mother I had known. And as a toddler, I was given to this woman. And I never see my aunt again. The first memories I have in my entire life is playing hide-and-seek with my mom and, and hiding in the covers And crying myself to sleep. Now, when my mom was when I was five years old, my mom got pregnant uh, from my stepdad, and and so she moved myself and my older brother into their house. And that's when my entire world changed. My older brother began molesting me, And, and and if I didn't do what he wanted, he would hurt me. And then he started bringing his friends over and making me do horrible, awful, disgusting things to his friends. And I would try to tell my mom, he's he's hitting me. And she would tell me, leave him alone. And here I was, going through life, believing that I wasn't wanted, I wasn't loved, I should have died when I was born. Because I'm not good for anything. I I ended up moving with my mom and my brother and my my older brother, and my younger brother to Central California when I was in fifth grade. And and that's love the city, your little town, remind me so much of our little town. Um but my older brother decided that he wanted to make friends. Small town, everybody knows everybody, and here we come in, the new kids. And from LA and then the blast, we didn't really fit in. And he started making fun of me so he could make friends. And then he got other people to make fun of me. And then by the time I was in junior high school, I couldn't walk down a, a hallway without people laughing at me and pointing at me and mocking me. And, and, and then I would, I had no friends so that I would go home and, and I was being abused, sealed by my brother. And my mom created this thing that she called a bedchamber where she would have me stripped down, lay in the bed with my face in the pillow while she beat me with a two by four that had sorry carved in it backwards. And every time she would do that, I would have the word sorry, incorrectly spelled, welted up on my body. This was my life. Now, in junior high, I just remember wanting to die. I I, I would think about ways that I could kill myself. Or I would think about jumping in front of a, a car because I didn't want to live. But the only way that I knew how to take the pain from inside and not be hurting inside was to self mutilate Because I can control the pain that I inflict on myself, but I can't control the pain that other people are inflicting on me. So I would get my fingernails and I would dig them into my face. I would rip my face apart or I would get something sharp and just jam it into my legs until I was a bloody mess. Like I hated who I was. When I was in eighth grade, I was in summer school and I was walking home from summer school and there was a popular girl that was walking just ahead of me. And in my mind, I figured if I just got a little bit closer, that maybe people might think that we're walking together. And as I started walking closer to her, she heard me and she turned around and looked right at me. And she said, aren't you so-and-so sister? Well, I broke down and I just started crying And at that moment, they brought me into the cool crowd and they pushed my brother out. But at 14 years old, I had no idea what life was about. I had only endured all this pain up until that moment. I didn't know anything. So when I went to my first house party, I drank everything that was put in front of me. And I didn't realize how dangerous that was until I heard... Multiple guys coming into the room, a dresser being moved in front of the door, and people climbing on the bed. But God, in his faithfulness, allowed my friend to realize what was happening. Her boyfriend ran outside, smashed the window to break in and save me. In 10th grade, we moved back down to Southern California. And on the same day we moved back, my older brother went to go and live with my father. And I remember watching as he loaded my, my, my brother's things into the truck. And, and, and they get in the car and drive away. And I remember thinking, why is he being rewarded for everything that he's done? And why do I have to stay here? So I created an identity for myself. I wasn't gonna be Marlene who was, was bullied, who was horribly, physically, sexually, emotionally abused. I was now gonna be Marlene, the one who's gonna tell you what's cool and what's not. I started working at 15 years old and, and totally illegal and under the counter, but I was doing it and, and I started making my own money so I have my own nails done and my hair done and nice clothes. Eventually got a car and everybody became my friend. I started working for the city I was living living in and, and I started getting to know all the homeboys from the neighborhood. And at school, I had football players and soccer players and cheerleaders and you name it. They were all my friends. And I married the two girls together. So I had the drugs, I had the connections, and I knew where all the parties and the raves were because that's when the rave scene began. Everybody thought that I was... Having this awesome life. Because from the outside looking in, people wanted to be me. But I didn't even want to be me. I remember being in in high school. I was probably a junior or a senior. And one of my kids' families, multiple kids died in a fire. Because they were living in a garage in a space heater caught fire, and they couldn't get out. And as I'm getting ready for, 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 for school, I'm crying. And I remember telling my mom, I'm going to church. And my mom looked right at me, and she said, you don't even know how to do church. If the priest says this, what do you say? I don't know. Well, if he says this, what do you say? I don't know. You can't go to church. So I didn't. I barely graduated high school, praise God, by the grace of God. I didn't walk on stage. I got my diploma during summer school. I still remember as I was driving by the school, I remember fireworks going off and hearing music while I was taking my little brother to my grandma's house. Because my dad and my mom had become physical in their fighting. And the police told me to take my brother and flee. This was my life. I became pregnant from one of the guys from the neighborhood. And that's what happens when you live that life. You don't know what love is. So when somebody tells you they love you, you believe it. And in my thinking, I wanted to protect my baby. So if I just gave my daughter her dad, she would never experience what I did. But my daughter, when she was two months old, her father broke three of her ribs. And I remember sitting in the emergency room and asking the doctors, what are you going to do? Police officer comes into the room because I work for the city. These officers were my friends." And he comes and he tells me, Marlene, you don't understand. They're gonna come and take your baby from you. You have the opportunity to prevent her from going to an orphanage. Call a family member to come and get her. The only person I had to call was my mom, who had just months before asked me to have a baby for her and her new boyfriend, the old-fashioned way. As my mom walks into the the emergency room, she is screaming, give me my baby. I knew you were going to hurt her. Give me my baby. I was already pregnant with my second daughter. I fought for custody for two and a half years. And in those two and a half years, I went from working at a recreation center at a city to becoming an executive assistant at an Alzheimer's facility in charge of hundreds of staff members, 24 hour on call, which my mom later turned around and told the courts that I was never visiting my kids. And if I was, I was on the phone Talking to guys. So as I'm sitting on the witness stand, and the judge is giving his his um, decision, he looks at me and he says, "We know that you didn't hurt your daughter, and we know that that um, you completed all your parenting classes, two sets of parenting classes, and we know that you spent thousands of dollars on counseling." but the maternal grandmother states that you do not go and visit your children. So we feel it would be a detriment to their mental and emotional well-being to reunify you with them. As I come out of the courtroom, my attorney starts talking to me about filing appeals and what the next steps are. And I looked right at him and I asked him, What is maternal? I had no idea that it was my own mother for two and a half years that was constantly calling Child Protective Services while I was at her house and telling them that she got my children ready and they were supposedly waiting for me and I never showed up. When I was at her house... For two and a half years. I decided that I wanted to try to get my children back and and fight in a court system that that she would not be able to manipulate. So I signed up for the army and I shipped out two days later. My body was not at all prepared for the stress it was going to endure. I developed shin splints my second week of basic and by the time I finished I had fractures in both my legs. I refused to give up. Until a year later, I was medically discharged. And I come to find my mom had adopted my children. Now what? Now what do I do? What is my purpose and what is my reason? Because before I held my daughter for the first time, I had no purpose. I had no reason. I was going day to day, getting high since I was in junior high. I was doing methamphetamine. I was doing crack cocaine. You name it. I was doing it in high school. I didn't want to feel. I didn't want to be me. Because when the numbness wore off and I was left with myself because people were, on the phone with me, or it was in the middle of the night, I was stuck with me. I'm a product of rape. My dad didn't want me. He tried to kill me in my mother's stomach. I'm nothing but a thing for men to use. I've been horribly abused. I've been horribly bullied. I have my babies now, but now they're taken. What do I have? Just a little blind and I'll be fine. I just gotta get through the day because that's what they say I need to do. I need to be a productive member of society. I need, I need to look the part so again. I have my nails done. I had cute little dresses and high heels. I would get up in the morning and work, and then I would come home and pop pills to go to sleep at night. I lived one city away from my mom, but I was never allowed to go and see my kids. This was my life. Until one day, I was reconnected with somebody that I had known from that former life. A friend, a confidant, if you will. The mailman that used to deliver mail to my 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 daughter's father's house. A friend of his family. I knew that he was a drug dealer because I knew him. But I didn't realize to what extent until I moved in with him. He was a major drug supplier for the part of LA County that we lived in. When I say major drug supplier, I mean he was unlimited. So anything from weed, to pills, to, to meth, to cocaine, to crack, to um, uh, heroin, we didn't just have it. We had multiple different kinds and we were unlimited never had to pay for anything because of who he was he got it for free and this is the world that i stepped into again i didn't know what that world was so the first time he came to pick me up from work i was working as a secretary for an attorney who who was um whose office was right above the police station, ironically. And he came to pick me up, and he looked greasy. <laughs> I, 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 I didn't ever see this before. And, and he looked like his eyes were, like, popping out of his head, and, and he smelled, and, and I didn't know what this was. And we got home, and he started tripping around the house and looking out windows, absolutely paranoid. And I didn't know what this was. And I remember telling him when I finally figured it out, You have your kids. Why are you doing this? You have your kids. And that is the first time he put a crack pipe in my mouth and forced me to hit it until I passed out. This was my life. I used to tell him before all of this started that he was my Prince Charming because he used to tell me that he woke up in the morning just to make me smile. And there was no more smiling. I was with him for four and a half years and for four and a half years he beat me horrifically. Most days I was locked in the bedroom and then by the off chance that he would he would go out to work I would be raising his kids. I was a PTA board member. I, I was a classroom mom. I was living a hell that I had never known before. And I had left him so many times. Like, there were times in the middle of the night where I would, I would be able to calculate, okay, so if he's on this side of the room, it would would take me this much amount of time to get to the bedroom door and unlock both of the locks and then I would have to run down the hallway and run down the stairs and run back to the front of the house and I would have to unlock the living room front door and and then unlock two locks on 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 the security gate and then I could run out of the house. And I did that sometimes because I made it out and I would hide in somebody's bushes down the street. Because if he caught me, it would be horrible. This was my life. He he, he started off by, by just hitting me or maybe slapping me. But eventually got to the point where he would sock home clock and sock me and jump on top of me and just start beating me or or if I was lucky enough he would just choke me out until I passed out or maybe even just smother me by putting a pillow on his entire 200 plus pound body torso on the pillow until I passed out and then he would he would slap me to bring me back And he would do this over and over again. This was my life. He beat me with a police flashlight. He's tased me with taser guns. He ripped my hair out with locking pliers that he locked in my hair and slowly turned until patches of my hair were plucked out slowly. This was my life. The scar I have on my head right here is when he beat me with the broom. And I was for sure that when he seen the blood pouring down my face that he would stop. But it made him even more angry. He would beat me with a belt buckle in and he would, he would, he would, I have dents in my skull all over my skull and bald patches that will not grow back hair. This was my life. And I knew how to do this. This was a crazy thing. I knew how to do this because it's all that I knew since a child. This was my life. And here I was, To the point where he hog-tied me with my hands and my feet tied together, all four limbs in the back. And he proceeded to duct tape me from head to toe, leaving a small opening in my mouth the size of maybe the tip of your pinky to breathe. And he proceeded to punch me and kick me and put a plastic bag over my head for hours. This was my life. And eventually one day, it was a day after Thanksgiving in 2004, I had just sent his kids off to their mothers. He came home with his motorcycle not able to fit in the garage. And he, he was mad at me because of all the junk that he was bringing home. And I remember telling him, Jack, I can't fight with you. I have a broken toe. I can't fight with you. And he told me to leave. So I grabbed slippers, I grabbed a blanket from the sofa, and I walked out the front door. I walked to my mom's house that was five miles away on a broken toe in the middle of the night. And I knocked on her door and as she opened it, I said, mom, I don't want to come in. I don't want my kids to see me like this. I need you to call a Victory Outreach home because I'm gonna die if I don't get help. The next morning, Victory Outreach Women's Home came and picked me up. And for the first time, like, I used to have Christians telling me before this, like, if you just surrender your life to the Lord, he'll forgive you of all your sins. Wait, what? (laughs) Forgive me? What did I do? What what did I do to make people treat me like this? (laughs) And I would get mad and I would get angry. And now here they are in the women's home. And they're telling me, you can't come in here unless you ask Jesus to come into your heart and forgive you. And now I knew I needed forgiveness. I ruined so many people's lives with drugs. I I seen babies that were wearing the same diaper they had for days. I saw a composite sketch on myself on FBI Most Wanted, the news at night. And I had tracked somebody's goings and comings with a plan to torture them to death. This was my life. And I sat in that living room in the women's home and and I asked Jesus to be my Lord and Savior. And that was it. There was no birds chirping or dove descending from heaven. I didn't hear angels singing or harps playing. I just got up and went about my day. The next morning, we all came to the living room or the kitchen to do our own little Bible devotion before we met for Bible study. And for the first time, as I opened the word of God, as I had tried to do so many times before, and completely did not even understand what I was reading. For the first time, I opened the Bible, and it's t- not only do I understand it, but it's telling my story. I remember one day we were driving um, to our, our workstation, which was the Dream Center in L.A., and we're in this van, and I remember... The women's home director saying, Marlene, if you were the only one that needed to be saved, he would have still died on the cross for you. Marlene, do you understand that God gave his son for you? As a mother, Whose very breath, every breath I took made me yearn and long for my children. And to hear that God the Father loved me and gave his son for me. Who am I? Who am I? That he is mindful of me. I'm a product of rape. My dad tried to kill me. I'm worthless. But God loved me. I stood in the home for a couple months, and then one day I was accused of something that I didn't do. Now, mind you, mind you, I had been in trouble a lot, because I was safe. I wasn't sanctified. So I was fighting in the home, getting in trouble all the time. Their kitchen was spotless. And, and that's because I was always in trouble. But one day, I was accused of something I didn't do. And I, this is what I came from. So I left. I got my slippers back, I got the pajamas I walked in, and I got the blanket, and I walked out of the women's home on a rainy day. I called my mom, and she came, and her boyfriend came and picked me up, and I went back to her house, and the next morning she tells me, as I'm sitting down at the kitchen table with my Bible and my cup of coffee, she tells me, Jack has been calling here looking for you. And he has other people calling here looking for you. And he's, he's worried about you, Marlene. So just call him and let him know that you're okay. So I called him. And then he wanted to see me. So I told my mom. Um, so he, he said he wants to see me. She gave me clothes and makeup and sent me on my way back to the man who horribly abused me. For four and a half years. And when I went to see him, his son had a black eye. And I remember asking, What happened to him? And he said, You're not here, so now he's messing with my head the way that you were. His son that I helped raise for four and a half years. So I moved back in and, 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 I I, I I was clean for two weeks until he begged me to get high with him because he wanted to love me. So I did. And then I seen it happening all over again. Now, because of the lifestyle that we lived, I had weapons, lots of weapons, anything from a double-shot Derringer all the way up to like, a MAC-10, AK, Uzi, whatever. He had restraining orders, so he didn't have any illegal firearms, but we had a plethora of illegal firearms. We had just got a double-barrel shotgun, and I modified it myself. And I was the only one that knew where it was because I had just bought seven-gauge rounds for it. Now, as he's tripping around the room, has me locked in the room again. I remember just telling him, Jack, I can't do this. I can't do this. And he didn't even care. So I jumped over the bed. I grabbed the weapon. I stood at the edge of the bed and I put it in my mouth. And he looked at me and he said, you're not going to do it. Why not? Why not now? I have nothing and I have no one. Why not? So I took the weapon out of my mouth. I dropped to my knees and I cried out to the Lord. I said, Lord Jesus, please forgive me for all my sins, all my shortcomings, and especially for what I'm about to do. I'm tired of being alone and I'm tired of being abused And I'm so tired of abusing myself with drugs. If it's your will, allow me into heaven. If not, let me stay here and I'll do your will. I didn't know what that meant. But it's what was placed on my heart to pray. I took the weapon. I took the safety off. I put the weapon back in my mouth and I pulled the trigger. I brought pictures. So I have two pictures. One picture is of the way that I looked before I shot myself. The second picture is of what I looked like in the trauma unit, the moment that I was wheeled in. Um, We can share, I'll show the first one, but I'll give you a warning before I show the second one. So if you're queasy and don't kind of like gory stuff, then I would just... Oh, thank you. <laughs> okay, let's not show the second one yet. So that is me in high school. What's crazy is like all the styles are coming back, right? Right? Y'all, y'all have to be so serious. Okay. So that's me in 10th grade. Um, yeah, that's me in 10th grade. So before we show the next one, okay, so this picture is horrific. Um, the picture that we have next is... Um, when I first got to the trauma unit, it, it is horrific. So if you have small children, I, I would implore you to cover their eyes. If you are sensitive, I would implore you not to look. Um, but we'll show up for about five seconds, and then we'll remove it. Go ahead. Thank you. Jesus, Jesus, save me that day. When I pulled the trigger, um, the recoil of the weapon was so powerful, it took me from being on my hands and my feet on the floor, and it threw me onto the bed. I came through immediately, immediately. I'm like, I thought that would be it, but I came to right away, and I remember just sitting here thinking, oh my God, I did it. I did like, I did it, and, and the ringing in my ear was so loud, and the screaming from my boyfriend was so loud, and I, I'm just sitting there because I can't see. I, I can't. I can't see, and, and I can't breathe, and I'm just sitting there. And then I hear my boyfriend leave the room and start giving his son stuff to hide in the attic. So as I'm sitting there dying, his first thought is to hide all the drugs and all the weapons. And then eventually I can hear on the police scanner that 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 there were shots fired. That was the call for shots fired I come in. I can hear on on the police scanner that um the paramedics were called. I can hear on the surveillance, I can hear um, um sirens coming and, and and then I had this thought like I had to protect him because that's what I was trained to do. And so I tried to stand up and I tried, to, I couldn't stand up. So then I tried to call out to him like, and, and only gurgling came out. And that's when he realized I was alive the police came and they cleared the house and and the paramedics came upstairs and they're cutting off my clothes and, and they're gonna they're saying it's gonna be okay and they called me by a name that wasn't mine and they said it's, it's gonna be okay we got you and they called me by this name and I remember thinking oh my god that's that's not my name that's not my name. I'm going to die and nobody knows who I am. That's not my name. And God said, no. I know who you are. And I let go. And God's, God's love and his peace met me in that moment with every breath that I was taking that was getting shallower and shallower. God's love and his peace It's getting stronger. I was conscious until I got to the trauma unit and and I'm being wheeled in and the nurses are forcefully holding my shoulders down. And they're they're saying, they're saying, it's gonna be okay, we got you, and they're holding, pushing my shoulders down. And I just remember thinking, that's strange. Why are they pushing my shoulders down? And then they took me into surgery. When I woke up from a coma two weeks later, there was a nurse that was in the trauma unit that had came up every day since I was first admitted. And she came up every day and read me the Bible. And she brought me a CD player with worship music and she made sure that it was going all the time. And when I woke up, I, 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 I couldn't speak, so I wrote, like, what happened. And she started telling me in medical terminology all the different parts of my face that I lost. And I remember just telling her, I couldn't handle it. And she said, You lost three fourths of your muscle, of your facial skeleton, and you lost two thirds of the muscle in the tissue. And in that moment, God spoke to my heart. In in the deepest, most, most regrettable moment of my life, God said, your face is going to be the door that I've used to bring people to me. The Apostle Paul says, I know a man that was caught up to the third heaven, whether in the body or out the body, I do not know. And I can't say how or when or can't tell you exactly how or where. But in those two weeks that I was in a coma, or I don't know if it was a first or I don't know. I remember just being in a very dark scary place See, so Jesus says that if you die apart from him that you're cast into outer darkness where there's weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth I was me I was, I was me and I knew I was me and I knew who I was and, and, and with every step I kept taking the 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 darkness was becoming so much more powerful. And and the fear and the shame and the pain and every bad and horrible thing I have ever experienced here on earth was magnified by like a million. And with every step I'm taking, it's just so much more worse. And I knew that there was nothing I could do to get me out from where I was because I made my decision to be there. I chose to turn my back on God. And I knew that was where I was supposed to be. But God, through his love and his mercy, took me from there and drew me to himself. The Bible says that God is light, and in him, there is no darkness at all. It's, it's, I describe it like when you go and get your eyes checked and and they shine that light in your eyes and it's so bright and blinding and you're like crying. It was brighter than that. But it wasn't blinding. And it radiated every part of my innermost being with love. And, and as he's drawing me to himself... Uh, The more love I feel and the more I want. But the Lord allowed my little brother's voice to come through. And I remember thinking, I have to go back. I remember making that choice, I have to go back. A day is like a thousand years to the Lord. I don't know how long it was from the time I chose to come back until the time I woke up. I remember it feeling like an eternity. This is my life. I was now not only horrifically disfigured, but I'm still a product of rape. I was still horribly abused and bullied. I still have my children that, that, that I wasn't able to see. But now I've just figured I wasn't able to speak for the first year after this because the only place that I was able to go after I shot myself was with the brother who abused me. God, in his faithfulness to me, took me back where it started. And every day since then, he has taken me from valleys to mountaintops, to valleys to mountaintops, God has faithfully healed moment by moment the abuse, the memories, the trauma. He slowly will bring something to surface, and and you know we come to God and we say, God, I give you my all. But then when God says, I I want that. You know that thing that you're ashamed of that happened that nobody knows about? I'd want that. And we tend to come to God and say, no, no, God, you can't have that. I give you everything else. But that's too painful. That's too scared. That has too many bad memories. And I, I can't deal with that. I can't deal with that. Because I know you can't. That's why I want to deal with it. So instead of giving it to him, we hold on to it. And we allow it to eat us up from the inside out. What is Christmas? Glory, glory, glory is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. For 2,000 years, people have suffered the most horrific things in life. And they had no hope. They had hope without, without um the substance of things, hope for the evidence of things not yet seen. They had nothing to hope in but prophets that were telling them their Savior would come. They had no hope true hope but we but we have the mystery that has been revealed god with us and just as the angels came down that that night that jesus was born and proclaimed the savior Who are we to hold that back? We have the gift that all men need. The gift that this world is hungry for. A world filled with fear. A world filled with evil and pain. You have been predestined. I have been predestined we have been predestined for this exact moment in the span of the entire history of the world before the foundations of the world were even laid god knew your name he knew the numbers of your days he knew he knew the territory that you were going to dwell in. And he knew the people that you were called to declare glory in the highest. Let's not waste the time that we have. Let's allow. our our voices let's allow our lives to be the praise and let us who have even more reason to proclaim god's greatness than the angels who weren't even given the chance of salvation who are we to keep that back from the world God
0: bless you. Wow. Marlene, you're a walking miracle. But you know, we all are. You know, we all had things happen to us, and I just want to encourage all of you, let your light shine. If you're not a Christian, I just want to encourage you, consider Jesus. Because the world's love is fickle. I think back of the Beatles, and they sang a song, Love is All You Need. Remember that? Then they broke up and sued each other. That's the kind of love we don't want That's the kind of love that a lot of the 60s and the 70s were built on. It wasn't real. But you see, God has real love for us. And when you're really loved by God, it doesn't really matter what everybody else thinks. You always have him to fall back on. This morning, if you're not a believer, if you never really put your faith, trust, and hope in him, you are vulnerable to the fickleness of conditional love in the world. Conditional love is simply this. I love you if God says, I love you, period. There's a big difference. And so this morning, if you're not a Christian, I'd like to just uh, just lead you all in a prayer if you're not born again, those that are still listening on the internet. And this is how you come to Christ, where you actually ask God to come and live inside of you. Forgive you of your sins. And for what life we all have left, What was like Marlene with, didn't know for a matter of days if she was going to live or myself, that you can know that no matter to live is Christ and to die is gain. Let's pray. Father, I commit my life now into your hands. I believe Jesus died on the cross for me and his blood covered my sins. I repent of the foolish way that I have lived. And so from this day forward, I commit my life into your hands. Lord, make me the best I can be for you. Fill me now with your Holy Spirit. Empower me, God, from the the gifts that you have to be about your business in a lost world that I can be your representative. And so, Lord, write my name now in your book of life. I can spend eternity with you May you be praised in my life all the rest of my life. In Jesus' name, amen.